Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brandon Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Krista Laser, Assistant Professor of Law at Cleveland State University College of Law. We will discuss her new article, Legal Issues in Blockchain, Cryptocurrency, and Non-Fungible Tokens, which will be published in the Nebraska Law Review. So welcome to the show, Krista. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. I always love talking to you about your work. Uh, I really uh, enjoyed reading this new paper, which I thought provided a really thoughtful overview of what courts and regulators have done recently in the blockchain space. And perhaps even more importantly, sort of how we and they ought ought to think about it going, going forward. Uh, but for listeners who haven't read the paper yet, I wonder if you could start by just talking a little bit about how you think we ought to conceptualize uh, blockchain, cryptocurrency, NFTs in relation to legal doctrine. Is this like a whole new body of law we're talking about? Or is this like thinking about how we apply existing legal concepts and doctrines to new scenarios and how we ought to think about, about doing that? Thanks. The primary premise of the article is that when it comes to blockchain, we don't actually need an entirely new area of law for every new area of technology that comes out. Rather, old laws are designed to apply to new technologies as they emerge. And if they couldn't do that, they wouldn't be very good laws in the innovation space. Blockchain tells us something about how we can use old existing laws to extend to new technology. And in the blockchain space in particular, we see that for most of the key areas of law, like securities, intellectual property, contract law, jurisdictional issues, we can take previous legal doctrine and cleanly apply it in the blockchain space. Of course, there are exceptions, areas where new technology can sometimes show us that there are gaps in previous legal doctrine. But I think for the most part, it's not an area where we need an entirely new set of laws for this new technology. Well, so let's try to work through that with respect to particular areas of law, because you talk about it a lot of different bodies of legal doctrine and show how they've been applied by both regulators and courts in the blockchain the blockchain space. I wonder if we could kind of walk through some of those examples and get a sense of what you think is working well, maybe what's not working so well, and maybe what regulators and courts ought to be keeping in mind when they're thinking about making decisions in relation to blockchain-related activities. So specifically, you kind of start the paper talking broadly about about securities law. And I know that that's been a big issue among blockchain people, both in the cryptocurrency and in the NFT space, kind of thinking about what the implications, worrying about what the implications of securities law are What's actually happened and how worried should they be? So in securities law, I think the biggest threat is that 
regulators, lawmakers, and judges are not going to sufficiently understand the technology in order to adequately take the old law and apply it in this new space. And I think the errors that could arise are going to arise when those lawmakers or regulators are making mistakes about the nature of the technology. So I think that if if they understand it, they won't make those mistakes and the decisions that they make are going to be reasonable ones that break along the lines of the gray areas. So let's take the initial coin offering situation as an example. When are initial coin offerings going to be securities? We have this case that came out of the SEC versus Ripple Labs case that came out in July that many readers might be familiar with, some might not. But that case broke into a couple different pieces, saying that some aspects of what Ripple was doing were securities and that some aspects were not. Specifically, the court found that uh, blind bid ask transactions on public exchanges where the purchasers could not identify the seller easily were not actually securities in part because the people who were purchasing it were not doing so in order to uh, create an investment in a particular enterprise in which they were promised some investment return. Rather, they were investing in it more for the likelihood of market returns. And in the other hand, we have the court finding that Uh, direct sales to institutional investors where there was some expectation that the value of their investment would increase as a result of the work of Ripple, that those were going to be securities or offers or sales of securities. I think that's a reasonable line to draw. And we've seen a few other cases that came before that where other direct sales to the public such as um, when you have Telegram's initial coin offering of GRAM tokens, which were sold directly to individual purchasers with promised floor prices, lockup agreements, and other type of marketing that showed that this was going to be an investment to those individuals. That was found to be a security. I think those lines are pretty reasonable, but courts are going to struggle more when we get to some other unique aspects of the technology, like staking rewards, which don't have exactly the same technological characteristics as some of the initial coin offerings that were subject to these earlier cases. So this is really interesting in part because, especially when it comes to the Ripple decision, it seems like there's a disconnect or disagreement between the regulator and the court in terms of understanding the technology, which you, you say is the most important thing in terms of thinking about sort of how to apply existing law, how would you characterize the dif- disagreement? And how do you think the regulator and the court are understanding the technology differently such that it causes them to reach different results in terms of what they think ought to be happening? Yeah, I think. The regulator, the SEC, is taking a viewpoint that pretty much all sales in the blockchain space are going to be securities with the exception of Bitcoin. Uh, The SEC chair, Ginsler, has said uh, only that Bitcoin is the only one that he's explicitly said is not a security. Now, there was a time period a while back where he had also said that Ethereum was not going to be a security, but that was before the switch to proof of stake. 
And um, since then, uh, there's, I think, some indication, for example, in the Coinbase case, that the SEC views everything except for Bitcoin as a security. And I think generally regulators would understand the technology more than the courts because they have taken time to conduct hearings and investigate these issues for years before it reaches the court, who's only had a few months to take a look at these issues. But I I do think that the SEC's position is not necessarily driven by the technology differences so much as it's driven by uh, a positional um approach saying we we have taken a position that all of these things are securities and we're going to push forward with that we want to prevent the massive amounts of fraud that's happening in this industry and uh, this is the way that we can do that um i don't think that the sec is attempting to make really nuanced distinctions among different aspects of the technologies necessarily so maybe we could also then talk about the impact theory case, which also involves the SEC regulating, uh, and but doesn't involve any courts yet, right? And it also involves a different, well, arguably different technology. kind of came out differently. Do you think the courts would think about it differently than the SEC did internally? If so, why? And is the technology really different or is it the same technology just in a different flavor? Yeah, the the August 28th decision, um, when the SEC issued its first action letter against the NFT seller impact theory, in, in that case, I think that the SEC was viewing impact theories offerings as essentially an initial coin offering that was framed as an NFT project. And I think there's a risk for anybody who's selling NFT projects hoping that they're going to get around the rules for initial coin offerings, those folks are going to be out of luck because the Howey test that's used for deciding whether something's a security is not going to consider the form factor to say, is this a security or not? They're going to say, is this an investment in a common enterprise where people are expecting return and value? And in the impact theory case, that company marketed the NFT as building tremendous value for purchasers. And that's something that is a bit of a trigger for the SEC. I think it makes sense that the SEC went after that company for potential securities violations because they were just using the NFT form to make what was clearly a securities offering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so to the extent your thesis is that we've got an existing body of law that needs to be applied to a new technological scenario with sensitivity to that technological scenario. Do you think the problem here or the disagreement here is a function of a sort of disagreement about what the unique features of the technology are, a function of kind of a a lacuna in the body of law that's being applied or kind of an uncertainty in the body of law that's being applied, or maybe some kind of combination or um, interaction between the two of those things. I think that when regulators and courts have a perfect understanding of the technology, it will help them find the right answer, but it 
might not be enough to get them to agree on the outcome. And I think the blockchain space is one good example of that because even if even if both of them fully understood how these NFT products were being sold, they still might have different viewpoints about it. I think that it's it's helpful to fully understand it. It's necessary to avoid bad decisions, but the SEC and regulators are going to push harder to try to get things covered within their jurisdiction than, than courts are going to, to say that some aspect of technology is covered within the SEC's jurisdiction. That's the natural way of regulators. Right. So I think one thing that my sense is that a lot of people in the cryptocurrency and NFT space are worried about after some of these cases and kind of trying to understand what the SEC and the courts have said or are likely to say in the future, right? They're, they're worried about sort of potentially being told that they're doing something in violation of the securities laws. Do you have any sense of sort of what features of what they're doing and how they're doing it they might be sensitive to after we've kind of got this limited amount of guidance from the regulators and the courts and sort of how should they, as the potentially regulated parties, think about the law and how it might be applied to them? Yeah. Thanks for that question. I think that the case law we have so far does give us pretty good guidelines for what conduct is going to be found to be a security, both in court proceedings and at the SEC. And that is if companies, whether they're making initial coin offerings, non-fungible tokens, or any other avenue by which members of the public can put money into their company and expect some investment return back, that's going to be a security if those folks are making public statements promising some amount of investment returns, if all of the money is going into a common pool that's going to grow as a result of future work and future investment by the offering company, that's going to be found to be a security. And that's pretty consistent with the case law that existed prior to blockchain. We saw this in citrus groves and whiskey and beaver skins just as much as in blockchain and NFT projects. I think the closer calls are going to be ones like are blind bid-ass transactions on public exchanges going to be found to be a security where the offering directly to the public from the website of the issuer is found to be a security. And the Ripple case tells us that those blind bid-ass transactions are not going to be sales of a security, but we don't know what's going to happen to that case on appeal. And it might go the other way. At least we have this clear guideline that for those who are in the space of being regulated here, don't go around making promises that when somebody buys your NFT or your coin, that it's going to go up in value. If you make those promises, you will be found to be a security. Yeah, that sounds like pretty good, pretty good advice right there. Um, So in, in your paper, you also talk pretty extensively about how different bodies of intellectual property law doctrine might be expected to play out 
in in the blockchain space. And I, I, because I'm not really a patent person myself, I wonder if we could start by talking a little bit about patent law. And you talk specifically about kind of efforts to patent different aspects of blockchain technology and why, broadly speaking, you're a little skeptical of the viability of at least some, if not all, of those patents. I wonder if you, as a more of a former patent person, could could talk a little bit about why you think that is and why you think some of those may not be found to be valid going forward. Under the Supreme Court's current approach to patent eligibility under Section 101, the Supreme Court has said that inventions that are claiming abstract ideas, algorithms, laws of nature, those are not going to be patentable. Now, there's been a lot of pushback from industry, especially in the biotechnology industry, saying that this destroys innovation in some industries that rely upon either algorithms or natural phenomenons uh, for their the basis of their innovation. But assuming the continuing viability of the Supreme Court's approach to Section 101, many blockchain technologies are not going to be protectable under that approach. And part of that is that most of the applications of blockchain technology are abstract ideas. They're using algorithms, they're organizing human activity, they're implementing mathematical formulas on a computer, or, or using cryptography approaches. Those are all things that the Supreme Court has found to be not eligible. For example, in the one case that specifically addressed blockchain eligibility so far, Rady versus Boston Consulting Group, um, Rady was asserting that his employer BCG infringed his patent on a method to record unique physical signatures of gemstones, the blockchain to help track authenticity. And the court said, no, that was not patent eligible subject matter under the Supreme Court's previously existing test under Alice, in part because it was merely collecting, analyzing, and storing data, and that was an abstract concept. The court said that blockchain is merely a ledger, which is not entitled to patent protection. Now, if you want to say your invention is something more than that abstract idea, you have to add something that transforms it from that abstract concept into something else. And we see that we should never underestimate the intelligence of patent attorneys because blockchain patents are continuing to get granted even after this opinion. We see more blockchain applications, more blockchain patents being granted. And part of this is that patent attorneys are finding ways around it. They're finding ways to say, we are adding something unique and different on top of the previous blockchain technology, or we're creating a technology that helps to implement that. So some examples might be technology for better compression for mining algorithms or um, other types of technologies where you're not claiming some fundamental application to the, to the blockchain. You're claiming a technological improvement. Those are still going to be eligible. But if you're just saying take the blockchain and apply it to gemstones, take the blockchain and apply it to finance, that's not going to be protectable under the Supreme Court's current approach. 
So it would be fair to say, like, I've always understood Alice as kind of a patent adjacent person to have been saying, you know, taking something we already knew about and saying on a computer isn't enough for it to be patentable. Is the takeaway here taking something we already know and saying do it on the blockchain also probably not going to be patentable? Precisely. But doing something more than that could be. Interesting. Interesting. You can still you can still patent a specific design of a microprocessor, even if you can't say I'm going to patent the use of smaller microprocessors. Fair. So you, you also talk about both copyright and trademark law. And I think it might be worth kind of integrating those two conversations because it seems like in the blockchain space, well, maybe just in general, they have a lot of overlap in in a lot of ways. But specifically in the blockchain space, it seems like copyright and trademark seem to sort of interact with each other in interesting ways so far. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think that is, what, if anything, courts have really done with that so far, and what you see going forward, and specifically kind of what you think courts ought to be cognizant of, because this seems like a less of a regulatory area in some respects Mm -hmm. than, than securities law. I think the reason why copyright and trademark issues overlap so much in the blockchain space is because many of those issues are arising in the context of NFT collections, which are by their nature artistic works, or they were originally conceptualized as artistic works. And so you have people who are buying these objects in part for their artistic value, and yet there are questions around whether there actually is copyright protection in that. And so the companies try to find some other way to get intellectual property protection to make sure people aren't ripping them off. And uh, part of that is trademark law. So for example, in the copyright space, there's a huge issue right now about whether generative artwork is going to be protectable. And I think the discussion that we're seeing around the use of generative AI and things like stable diffusion is going to leak into our discussion of whether algorithmically generated content, like many of the large profile picture collections of NFTs, are going to be protectable. And there's a reason, I think, why Yuga Labs chose not to raise a copyright claim in its allegations against Ryder Rips. And that's because they didn't want their case to be the test case for whether algorithmically generated artwork is going to be copyright protectable. So instead, they pursue these trademark claims. And I think that was a smart move on their part. Yeah, I mean, this is one aspect of your paper, I found a really nice illustration of your kind of broader thesis and also something that kind of showed how much we can learn from applying old law to new technology, because I can't help but take away from some of these developments that a lot of this kind of these cross currents between copyright and trademark law that are kind of highlighted in the NFT space aren't fundamentally different from similar kinds of questions in other legacy markets. We just kind of see them with more clarity 
as they come into focus through the lens of blockchain technology? Oh, yeah. Well, take, for example, how Disney is now using trademark law to get around limitations of copyright law. For folks that aren't aware of this, some of the Mickey Mouse items are going out of copyright, and Disney has started taking Steamboat Willie and using it as a logo and before several of their movies, and that transforms it into a perpetual right. So it's it's common in many industries, in many creative industries, for businesses to say, if copyright fails us, we're going to find a way to make trademark work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it really drives home to me the extent to which a lot of what we historically have conceptualized as markets for the sale of works of authorship are significantly really consumer markets for branded products, where the work of authorship is really just a sort of particular element in the product line, rather than something that kind of stands alone, distinct from the brand with which it's associated. So true. And that comes into a lot of what you've written about the cloud economy and our, and the art market. Right. Well, so you also talk about the right of publicity. Uh, I think for a lot of listeners, that may be a less familiar body of, of law, specifically sort of less familiar insofar as how it works. And I think it's interesting because it brings states into the equation not not just federal regulators and and federal courts. How do you see the right of publicity sort of affecting the blockchain space and interacting with these other bodies of of intellectual property law in in novel ways as a function of their application in this new space? One of the ways that I see blockchain potentially changing the law comes in this surprising place, which is that I think blockchain shows us how federal the application of right of publicity violations can be. And if we have, for example, a celebrity that's known across the United States and someone selling NFTs marketed, suggesting a collaboration, like what happened with uh, Lil Yachty and the company um, Opolis that were marketing NFTs, suggesting a connection with him. I think when we see this happening, it can be hard to say that states' laws are the right place to address that kind of harm. And so I think we'll see these kind of problems emerge more and more in the AI space. But these initial cases in the blockchain space show us that maybe we do need some sort of federal right of privacy and right of publicity to stop people from and companies from engaging in a nationwide misappropriation of somebody else's name and likeness. I think this is an example of where this new technology can show us where changes might be necessary in the law or helpful in the law. Now, for those who aren't familiar with how the right of publicity works, uh, different states have different rules on this. Some of them will treat it as a right of privacy. Some of them will treat it as a right uh, to protect your own ability to monetize your image, name, likeness, other aspects of, of your commercial persona. 
and different states have different rules about whether it applies to people that are dead or only living individuals. And different states have different rules about so many other aspects of these rights. It can often be difficult to determine which state law is going to apply. Part of it's going to be where did the person die? Where were they residing at the time that the violation occurred? But what do you do if both people, the accused infringer and the owner of the the right are in different locations and they're both alive? It can be difficult. So I think a federal like right can be helpful here. Those who are in the regulated industry or those who are, I should say, people that are creating in the blockchain space or the NFT space or even the AI space, you guys should be aware that in every state, there's going to be a law that's going to prevent you from taking somebody else's image without their consent and using it to market a good, suggesting some association or sponsorship by that individual. But exact nuances of that right are going to vary from state to state. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a really nice illustration in some ways of the broader thesis that you're advancing insofar as because of its fragmentation, the right of publicity is to be charitable, a kind of uniquely uh, under-theorized body of law, as it were, where, you know, state courts, state regulators, to the extent there really are state regulators, haven't necessarily thought all that hard about what the law is supposed to accomplish, how it's supposed to accomplish it, and how to know when it's working and when it's not working in the way they want it to, right? So it it struck me, like reading your paper, that, you know, maybe this is an area where the lack of clarity in what to expect ought to suggest to us that we need to think a little bit harder about the underlying body of legal doctrine as a function of seeing how hard it is to apply in a new context. And well, we see that there's also a huge potential for lobbying efforts to greatly sway the right of publicity law in each state, in part because you have, for example, the estate of Elvis Presley um, trying to ensure that the Tennessee laws were going to protect Elvis Presley's legacy. That totally changed the scope of right of publicity law in Tennessee. And that's why Tennessee has this posthumanist. Uh, right, whereas many other states are only going to protect living individuals. So if you have a state right on an important issue instead of a federal right on that issue, it can lead to even more impact of lobbying dollars rather than policy considerations when it comes to how these laws are are formed. Well, so keeping in kind of the, the state law vein, you also talk about the interaction between blockchain and, and contract law, which is you know typically a state law body of law. There's a lot of continuity uh, in contract law across states, arguably more so than with the right of publicity. And there's been a lot of talk about blockchain as kind of uh, displacing potentially certain aspects of contract law through smart contracts, quote unquote, and, and other kind of technological mechanisms. How do you see that playing out? And to what extent do you think that it's possible, desirable, ultimately going to happen that we'll see a kind of technological iteration 
of contract law as opposed to contract law still being defined external to this new technology. So I hate the term smart contracts because they're not contracts at all. I don't know who decided to call them a contract. It's not a contract. They're chain code. It's computer programs that exist on the blockchain. So if you want your chain code to be legally enforceable, you need to associate them with a legally binding contract or language that implies a contract. If you don't have that, then your smart contract is not a contract at all, and it's not legally enforceable. This comes up quite a lot where, for example, there was um, a guy named Eisenberg that tried to uh, execute this scheme to inflate the price of a certain uh, cryptocurrency and then use smart the smart contracts that existed there to withdraw huge amounts in loans and then uh, try to get the the decentralized autonomous organization, the Mango DAO, to approve a settlement in to uh, to say that they weren't going to sue him for some amount of fraud. And he was trying to say that that contract where they executed the settlement was a valid contract. And therefore, he should be allowed to go forward with doing whatever it was that the code in the chain allowed him to do. This idea that uh, there is a Um, sort of a law of the code. Well, courts didn't buy that. And they said, no, first of all, there are legal requirements in order to have a binding contract. And one of them is that your contract is not entered into under duress. (laughs) So if you're going to get somebody to sign a cryptocurrency contract of any kind under a threat of violence, under a threat of economic duress, like you're holding all of the money that would otherwise render them um, solvent, then that executed code is not a contract. That executed code is not going to be binding. Uh, on a more a simple level, we're lucky that contractual issues do have so much consistency from state to state that it's at least easy for me to describe in the paper what the applicable scope of the law is. Contract law has existed for hundreds of years, if not thousands, and we have so many details about how it's supposed to operate that it doesn't really matter that it's a state law almost because there's so much consistency. So we do know that there must be this offer and acceptance of contract, that there must be clarity in the material terms of the agreement so that both parties understand what it is they're agreeing to. You can't stick something in the chain code and expect that that's going to be part of your contract just because the person signed that signature on the blockchain. Um, but there that doesn't mean that a particular buy-sell transaction is going to be invalid. Simple transactions are clear enough that people understand their material terms and those are going to be enforceable. But we're talking about complex terms that are buried in the in the code. That's not going to be legally enforceable, even if you smart contract execute. Right. I mean, it it seems like a lot of people are trying to be a little too clever with some of this kind of stuff, like opting out. They want to opt out of contract law on the front end, but still be able to enforce it on on the back end. It seems like that's kind of missing the whole point of having 
Well, the goal is to mislead people who are less sophisticated in code. And the people that are pushing for that rule are doing so because they have a unique information advantage. And isn't that always what people try to do with the law is to take advantage of information asymmetry? Well, the law doesn't allow that here. I mean, are you, do you think there are aspects of blockchain technology that courts ought to take into account in contract law that are kind of specific to blockchain technology that differentiates it from previous applications of kind of general contract law principles? And, you know, if so, what are those? And are there any elements that you think that maybe courts aren't as cognizant of yet as they might be? And after all, the technology is pretty new and a lot of this stuff is still working itself out. I think the couple things that I think courts and judges who are deciding cases involving smart contracts or chain code, as I prefer to call it, that should know is they should know how signatures work on the blockchain. So typically blockchain transactions are signed by a user logging into a wallet application that can connect to an exchange, which are going to keep the cryptographic keys necessary to complete the transaction, or sometimes people have those in their own possession uh, if they're more sophisticated, and then they're going to click sign. Uh, The party's legal names are not used, but every transaction is associated with a wallet ID, and access to that wallet ID is limited to people that have either those cryptographic keys or the username and password associated with that wallet on whatever um, platform that user is storing their wallet. And under the Electronic Signatures Act, that likely is sufficient to constitute a signature. Now, just because you have a valid signature doesn't mean that every part of the contract is valid. That's going to be enough for a blind bid-ass transaction. It's not going to be enough if you have uh, some unique feature buried 10 pages deep in the code that says if if I transfer out my uh, NFT that you airdropped me that you're going to get all of my other assets or whatever it is. Those things are not going to be legally enforceable and a court's going to be able to come in and order the restoration of whatever the status quo was before that invalid contract. Mm-hmm. Got it. So Krista, in, in closing... I wonder if you could reflect briefly on what you think regulators and courts and maybe legislators as well ought to keep in mind when thinking about how to apply or adapt existing bodies of general law, typically in a blockchain context. In other words, kind of what's the takeaway in thinking about the relationship between abstract legal principles and blockchain technology in terms of kind of the practical realities of figuring out how to do regulatory activity more efficiently and more effectively. I think every branch has a role to play that's a little bit different here, and they might have a different thing that they're going to take away. At bottom, I think it's important that courts lawmakers and regulators all fully understand how the technology works before they enter an order or pursue an enforcement action or pass new laws. And I think it's important for all of those entities to understand that existing law, especially as applied to technology, was designed to and should 
extend to forward-looking situations. So when you get a new area of technology, that should not be seen as an invitation to create entirely new frameworks. I think that is a dangerous thing because then you don't get to accept the wisdom of how those laws applied to previous technologies that might have been similar. So for example, in the copyright space, I think that the Copyright Office is making a mistake by viewing AI-generated artwork as something entirely new when we have previous case law that looks to how other machines have been used as tools for human creation in the past. The same is true in blockchain. If, if we don't look at how previous cases applied to new technologies, to new corporate forms, to difficult jurisdictional issues, then we won't be fully informed when we're applying the law today. Courts and lawmakers and regulators should come into the space understanding the technology and understanding how the law has applied to new technology in the past. And if they do that, and if they do it carefully, I think they can come to the right outcomes that are going to provide clarity and certainty to the public and to innovators while also protecting people against fraud and other forms of harm. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Krista. This was really helpful and uh, I hope it's as useful for listeners as it was for me. Thank you so much. life some rain must fall they say that falling in love is wonderful they also say it's a wise child who can tell a hawk from a handsaw but what are they gonna say when they find out what happened to me the other night i went to bed i pulled the covers round my head when suddenly it seemed to me i heard a horse I heard his footsteps in the gloom Walking through my living room Who's there? I cried And the voice replied A horse, of course I thought it was some sort of hallucination Or maybe just a figment of my imagination And though the hour was very late I thought that I'd investigate Now what do you think was sitting there Leaning back in my easy chair Playing a game of solitaire A horse, of course The horse said, howdy, have a seat How's about a bite to eat? Forget your care, be debonair. You're sad, my lad. I said, now wait, this can't be true. What sort of animal are you? He scratched his head and then he said, a horse, of course. 
I could not stand to be in this mad position So finally I called up our family physician He hurried over right away I let him in without delay I said, hey doc, what's wrong with me? What's this creature I seem to see? Well, I'll tell you what it is, says he A horse, of course 